right, as you're taking your seats, go ahead and open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you don't have a Bible, we've got some ushers here that have some Bibles, and we would be uh, delighted to put a copy of God's Word into your hand. And if you don't own a copy of God's Word, just slip up your hand if you need one today. And if you don't own one, take this home with you. This is our gift for you. There is no greater gift that we could give in all the world than a copy of God's Word. It is worth more than all the treasures in all the depths of the earth. As you're opening your Bibles, I want to remind you that what you believe will always dictate how you live. Or to say it from the other side, how we live always reveals what we believe. We emphasize this a lot here, and I think for good reason. It's because how critical it is to understand this simply cannot be overstated. What we believe informs how, or if at all, we try to discern the will of God in the myriad of choices we must make. What we believe is evidenced in our putting sin to death or in our continued entanglement in sin. What we believe shines through in the words that we speak and in the attitudes that we hold. What we believe is reflected in how we spend our time and with whom we spend it. And the list could just go on and on. What we believe reaches every part of our life and it's present every minute and yet we can often be inattentive to the alignment of what we believe and how we live our lives. Maybe just to press it in a little further, what you do, you do because you believe something is true. Everything you do, you do because you believe that something is true. What you do always reveals what you believe at the time matters most or matters a little bit or doesn't matter at all. We see this very clearly in the writings of the Apostle Paul. Sometimes we see it in the way that he structures entire letters, right? Like Romans or Ephesians. Sometimes we see it at other times uh, within sections of his letters and it's one of those sections that we want to look at today. The more familiar that you are with the scriptures, when you hear 1 Corinthians 15, One word should come to your mind. Resurrection. This chapter presents the longest, most comprehensive teaching in the scriptures on the doctrine of the resurrection. One writer said these words, he said, The resurrection is the pivot on which all of Christianity turns and without which none of the other truths would much matter. Without the resurrection, Christianity would be so much wishful thinking, taking its place alongside other human philosophy and religious speculations. If it's not true that Jesus rose from the grave and that all who are united to him through genuine saving faith will also one day be raised, then Paul says, as he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, let us just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If the dead are not raised, let's just try and party as much as we can here and now because life is devoid of hope and is utterly futile. 
but the dead are raised. And this has tremendous significance for how we live. So here's what we want to see from God's word this afternoon. Since the resurrection is real, this truth should propel Jesus' followers to persevere in faith and in service to the Lord in this life, knowing that this carries implications for the life to come. I'll say that again. Since the resurrection is real, this truth should propel Jesus' followers to persevere in faith and in service to the Lord in this life, knowing that this carries implications for the life to come. We see this very clearly in the final verse of this chapter. Having spent 57 verses on the veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the corresponding resurrection to come for all who believe in him. Look with me now at what Paul writes in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Maybe just take note of those words in vain. They're going to come up several times this afternoon. From this verse, what I want to do is I want to draw out for us three callings for every Christian. Three callings for every Christian. And here's the first. Trust resolutely. Trust Resolutely, This is what God's word calls us to. We're told to be steadfast, immovable. I was recently at a cousin's house, and she was telling me about her neighbor, who's maybe one of those typical kind of crazy neighbors. You know, the, the ones that um, are, are just so grumpy and worried about the property line. There's, there's no fence. It's a big area out back with uh, lots of grass and trees and some of you are smiling to one another. Um, You have some experience, I suppose. But she was telling me that this grumpy neighbor uh, last uh, fall had just driven some small stakes into the ground along the property line as just as, as a visual marker where, you know, I don't want your kids coming past here. And then the winter goes by and in the spring... All the stakes are lying on the ground. And so he says to my cousin's husband, your kids knocked these stakes over. And and, uh, he didn't think that was the case. I I don't think that's what happened. Oh, yeah, look, I put them in the ground, and now they're lying there. And they were just these flimsy little things. And um, my my cousin's husband said, well, maybe, you know, it's a long winter and a lot of cold and, and wind, perhaps just, you know, maybe the elements just knocked them over and you know she was telling me this story we're having a little bit of a laugh over it but you know I remember working with my dad growing up as as my dad was a contractor and and he'd have all these different kinds of jobs and I I remember sometimes you putting in fences or building decks for people and and we had to he had this auger and we had to dig these holes four feet into the ground and it was hard work and, and we had to to drill down and then I had to move the dirt aside and drill down even further and it seemed like forever why do we have to go down this far dad I would ask and he said well 
because if we don't go down this far, the posts won't stay in their place. And we would put the post in and we would pour the concrete around and, and they would firm up, solidly planted in the ground. And, and this is a picture of the much greater calling that we have, greater than even the strongest fence post, to be steadfast and immovable. God says, plant yourself and don't move. Stand firm. He says, you, you yourself should not move, nor should you let anyone or anything else move you. We're called, as we look at this verse, to trust resolutely, to, to keep our faith in the Lord with unwavering determination. And to align with the context of the chapter, we need to ask, okay, trust what exactly? Where are we to stand firm exactly? What's the therefore at the beginning of our verse, therefore? And we would be correct, we would be absolutely correct if we were to answer, well, it's for the doctrine of the resurrection. That, that is 100% true. And yet, maybe to be even more precise than that, God's word is calling us to be steadfast, immovable, trusting resolutely in the fullness of the gospel. Look back with me at the beginning verses of chapter 15. In verse 1, Paul begins a, a brand new section of this letter by saying, Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And we'll stop there, but he goes on to um, recount how Jesus appeared to many people over the course of many different times, even 500 at once. And he says, cling to the good news. He couldn't be more clear as he states what is primary for the Corinthians and for each and every one of us to know and to believe. Right? Two realities in keeping with the scriptures. Jesus died for our sins and he rose again. Belief in these truths is to the Christian what breathing is to living. I know many of you, most of you probably know and believe the gospel. But there are some here I'm sure who do not. And maybe you're here with us this afternoon and you're searching for answers about life and death. Maybe you're searching for answers about purpose and meaning. Or maybe you're here because someone asked you to be here or, or because it's just what you do. You know, it's Sunday. That's what we do. We go to church on Sundays. Maybe, maybe you've been doing this for a long time. Maybe you're young and your parents just bring you. But you haven't believed the gospel. 
And if that's you, let me just share with you, and it is so good for the rest of us to hear this again, isn't it? The Word of God teaches us that God created the heavens and the earth. That's what we've been seeing in our series in Genesis. He alone created everything and everyone, and as the pinnacle of his creation, he created mankind to bear his image, to dwell with him with great joy and and peace in believing, right, and trusting him and, and living in his ways. And yet man rebelled against God. Man man sinned. And that brought about the fall of man. And this perpetuated throughout all generations. And each and every one of us were born sinners. We're born rebels. We're born resisting God and wanting to live our own way, wanting to be the God of our own lives. And there was no hope for us in this. We, we could never achieve the glory of God while we were yet sinners. And so God did what we could never do, and he sent a redeemer. He sent his son into the world, his eternal son, into the world to become man so that he would live a perfect life, and then he would die on the cross to bear the sins of the world. Jesus died on the cross. He he took the holy wrath of the Father upon himself for our sake. He took the punishment in full. It was finished upon that cross. And that is our hope that we look to to his substitutionary death on our behalf. And and the scriptures say, we we read it in John chapter 3, right? All who believe in him will have eternal life. All who look to the cross and say, God, count that for my sake. We believe that Jesus rose three days later from the grave. He conquered death. He rose from the grave and he ascended back to the glory of the Father's right hand and that he's coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. He, He will return in glory Unlike the first time where his glory was veiled, the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a day coming when he will return and he will judge each and every person. And if we're found having trusted in his death and resurrection, that will be a day of great joy when we'll be united with our Savior. But if you're not found having trusted in him, having loved him, having looked to him as your only hope for forgiveness of sins... That will be a terrible day. Paul says all of that he's writing to the Corinthians here about the gospel of Jesus Christ was foretold beforehand in the scriptures. Scriptures like Isaiah 53, looking ahead to what the Savior of the world would accomplish. The prophet Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And then in the same passage, it was foretold that he wouldn't stay dead. Isaiah 53 and verse 10 says, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall live again. He shall prolong his days. Or maybe we look to Psalm 16, where David 
says these words that are later applied more specifically to Jesus Christ. He says, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. Jesus himself also announced that these things would happen beforehand. We read in the Gospel of Luke chapter 9 that the Son of Man, Jesus said this, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. These things occurred just as it was said they would. And again, after Jesus was raised, he appeared to many people. And this is what the church in Corinth had previously affirmed that they believed. But now, as Paul writes this letter and he sends his letter to them, we read in verse 12 that some of them were saying that there actually is no such thing as a resurrection of the dead. Baffled, Paul writes in verse 13, if if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. If there's no resurrection, Jesus wasn't raised and neither shall we be and everything we believed in and hoped in is a sham. I hope you're seeing very clearly if you deny the resurrection, you deny the gospel. That's the essence of the argument. If Jesus is still in the grave, then our so-called Savior is dead. Sin has won the victory. Death holds the power and has the last word and we will all perish forever. There is no eternal life apart from the resurrection of the dead. It may sound redundant to say that, but it seems that what's happening here with the Corinthians is they're buying into this common view of their you know, their surrounding culture, the Greco-Roman world that they live in, that um, the spirit is what really matters and the physical can just easily be done away with. But Paul is having none of that. Paul is, is, is saying the resurrection is a bodily resurrection. And he says, neither could it be said, well, okay, fine, Jesus rose from the dead because they saw him. We can talk to people who saw him and touched him and ate with him. So maybe Jesus rose bodily, but this isn't the case for everyone else. And one has helpfully written about this. The resurrection of Jesus is inseparable from the resurrection of his people. For believers are united to Christ, thus his destiny is also their destiny. 
Another commentator has this really helpful uh, paragraph to say. It's actually a little bit long, but I'm going to put up on the screen here, and I'm just going to read it with you. I found these words very helpful. It says, the doctrine of the resurrection makes it clear that God's purpose has never been simply that of saving souls for a disembodied existence in heaven as though creation itself was of merely temporal usefulness and significance. Creation turns out to be not simply the context in which God is working out his redemptive work, but reflects instead the breadth of God's redemptive concern and plan. Physical, earthly, and bodily existence have to do with the nature of creation as God made it, and in a completely redeemed and transformed version is part of the nature of the context and existence that God has in mind for us and the rest of creation throughout eternity. Our life in this world matters in part because it turns out to be not merely a waiting room in which we pass our time until being invited into the rest of the building where we will really live. Our life in this world establishes the starting chapters for a story that will continue and flourish in radically new ways and not merely begin for the first time upon the resurrection of the dead. Have you received these truths? As Paul says to the Corinthians, I want to remind you of what I preached to you, which you received. Have you received these truths? That is the ultimate question. Believing in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the gateway. Without faith in, in this, there's nothing else for you to do right now. I just want you to hear that loud and clear. There's not attending church enough. There's not doing enough good works. There's not reading your Bible enough. You must first believe what is of primary importance. That Jesus died for your sins and rose again. If you've not believed this, I urge you and beg you today to believe and to be saved. Most of you, you're members of our church. You trust that Jesus died for your sin and rose again in accordance with the scriptures. And so I just want to remind you of the calling of God in our verse this afternoon. Trust resolutely. Don't move. Hold on. Keep believing in the gospel. Be steadfast, immovable. Don't waver. Verse 52 says that there's coming a moment in the twinkling of, uh, twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet when the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. He goes on to say death will be swallowed up in victory. The sting of death will be no more. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that's first, don't move from the gospel. Now the reason that I chose this text to speak to you about today 
is because of where our firm belief in these truths leads us. Turn now, or just look now, at verse 58 again and see what comes next. The Apostle Paul writes, inspired words of the Spirit, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's just kind of let those words sit for a minute. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is the second calling. And if you're taking notes, you could write this, toil continually. Toil continually. After such a a lengthy discourse on the resurrection of the dead and the call to be steadfast, immovable, and clinging to this truth, Paul could, I, I suppose he could have gone in any number of directions with what he would say next, but what he says is essentially be constantly engaged in much work for the Lord. Therefore, he says, since those of us who believe in him will also be raised with the risen Christ, hold fast to this hope and spend your days, as one translation says, excelling in the Lord's work. always abounding in the work of the Lord. This is an extremely lofty and, I think, sobering calling. Always abounding? I mean, are you sensing the intensity and the weight of this calling? Think about Abounding, overflowing, running over the sides. That's what this word means. It's more than we thought it could hold. That's what abounding means. Then there's, there's always, I mean, not most of the time, not some of the time, not, certainly not a little bit of the time or never. Always abounding. This, that's the calling of God on Each one of our lives, if you're united to Christ by faith in the gospel, you are called to continually exert yourself in kingdom-building work. Each one of us. This is written to everyone in the church. So like I said, this is sobering. We come face to face with a calling like this in the word of God and we have to ask ourselves, how am I doing in the work of the Lord? Or we could say it like this, what, what am I doing for Jesus? And in the, uh, in the very heavy weightiness of this, here's what I really want to convey to you, that the reason that I chose to speak to you about this stems from me being so thankful for our church, to be honest. I'm well aware that uh, there's a spectrum of answers to these self-reflecting questions. How am I doing in the work of the Lord? What am I doing for Jesus? There's, there's a wide breadth of answers in this room to those questions. And I'm sure there are some here today who really need to take a good look at your lives. And you need to make some serious changes in how you're spending your time 
beginning with the prayer that pleads with the Lord to change your desires and to align them with your beliefs. But listen, by and large, there are so many here in this room who are earnestly engaged in the Lord's work. We, we all have much room to grow, so don't, don't uh, misunderstand me. None of us have arrived. If any of us could say that we're accomplishing all we've set out to do for the Lord, then listen, we've set the bar too low. But I just want to share from my heart just kind of where I've been coming out of this summer. You know, I was away for an extended sabbatical, and as we were away, we traveled through uh, the States, We've got lots of friends throughout the states. We've got family. Polly's from Colorado. We've got family there. And so we're traveling, um, reuniting with people we haven't seen in a long time. Again, talking with family. And, and naturally, uh, the question just comes up, right? Uh, they know what I do. And so they say, how, how are things at the church? And I just want to share. It was my absolute joy to say things are going well. We're so thankful for our church. By and large, we are united. We are um, abounding in service to the Lord. We're serving one another, loving one another. We're gathering together, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week in different groups. And we were so encouraged to be able to share that. I mean, you know how many pastors there are who, when they're asked how are things going at the church, are not able to give those kinds of answers? And so our hearts have been just filled with gratitude and, and with thankfulness to the Lord and just joy in thinking about you all. And, and then from this, I found myself contemplating, okay, so if I assess and the elders assess that uh, we're a healthy church and we're, we're, we're grateful for the way that things are going in our church, the question then is, well, what do we need to do to keep doing what we need to be doing? What will persevering to make an impact for Christ, a further impact for Christ, look like in our church? And, and so my prayer for us looking at this text today would, would be that it would spur you on each and every day to ponder and to act upon the calling that we're looking at here to always be abounding in the work of the Lord. And again, some of you, it's excel still more. You're, you're abounding in the work of the Lord. You're, you're busy in the Lord's work, in kingdom building. And for others of you, it, that needs some area for, that's an area that needs some growth. Maybe we ask more specifically, well, what does this look like to, to abound in the work of the Lord? What does that look like in my life? And I'll just um, offer one word to start, discipleship. Discipleship, you, you know we are a church that is greatly concerned with the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Right after Jesus rose again, what did he do? He appeared to his disciples and he told them, go, therefore, and what? Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to what? The end of the age. The resurrection. And we, we have staked our church on the Great Commission because this is Jesus' calling. This is, this is what he has told us to do with our lives until he comes. 
And most of you know we, we um, paraphrase the Great Commission. We, we say that as, as a church, our mission is to see lost people saved, saved people matured, matured people multiplied all to the glory of God. And so as we think about well, what does it mean to be engaged constantly in the work of the Lord, let's just um, look at our mission as a church, which is also our individual mission as gospel-believing people. So the first is lost people saved. Lost people saved. If you're thinking about how do I abound always in the work of the Lord, be asking yourself this question, how can I tell someone about the Lord? How can I share the good news with someone? And by the way, as as I maybe offer up a, a bunch of questions here as we go through our mission statement, this applies, listen, wherever you are today. Does that make sense? So, so wherever you're going to be on a given day, whatever your context is, whatever people you're going to be around, this is how we ought to be thinking. How can I tell someone about the Lord? How can I go out of my way to show words and acts of care to unbelievers in a compelling way so that I can steer the conversation toward things like faith, hope, Peace, forgiveness, sin, mercy, right? These, this needs to be in our minds as we, this is doing the work of the Lord. How, how can I shine like a bright star against the backdrop of this dark world to show how the Lord has transformed my life so that others will be provoked to know and to worship the God that I know? This, these, answering these questions is what it can look like to be engaged, to be toiling constantly to see lost people saved. How about saved people matured? Ask yourself this, how can I put myself in places that are conducive to my own spiritual maturity? How can I say no to what I need to say no to so that I can chase after further devotion to the Lord? Your your ability to work for the Lord, to toil for the Lord, is directly linked to your own maturity in the Lord, right? These are good questions to ask. This is integral to being able to go out, right, to do the work of kingdom building. Next, mature people multiplied. Ask, how can I make an impact in the sanctification progress of my brothers and sisters in the Lord? Are you making an impact in other people's lives? Ask, how can I spend myself? Right? How can I exert myself in order to point others to Jesus so that they will know him better, trust him more, and live for him? How can I come alongside and, and serve and pour into others for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. These are some of the ways we can think about abounding in the work of the Lord. It doesn't matter if you're a student or if you have a full-time job outside the home or a full-time job inside the home. It doesn't matter if you're in ministry or not in ministry full-time or part-time. When you're around other people, are you thinking about kingdom building and doing the work of the Lord and in all of this we glorify him right all to the glory of God 
He is worthy of our service and our praise. And we also acknowledge that apart from him, we couldn't do any of this, right? So hear me say that. This is not a call to do any of this in our own strength. Even Paul, if you look back at verse 10, he says, By the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was, what, not in vain, but on the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So even Paul acknowledges his toiling for the Lord is only by God's strength working through him, and and we acknowledge the same as we give glory to him. We couldn't do this. We couldn't toil. We couldn't abound always in the work of the Lord in our own strength. It's just too hard, right? It's too tiring. It's too uncomfortable. It means too much constantly putting to death my own default desire to do something for me. By God's grace, we should all be able to point to others and to say, I'm working hard to help point them to the Lord. Who could you point to today? Who could you maybe possibly, uh, maybe not looking back, but looking forward, point to? The Word of God tells us that this should be abundant and constant in each one of our lives. So toil continually. Don't bow down to the idols of leisure and relaxation. There's just too much at stake. And that leads us to the final calling that we draw out of our text, and that is this. Think eternally. Think eternally. Look what the last phrase says in verse 58. Paul says, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. We believe that our work for him is not without consequence. It's not useless. It matters eternally. Why? Because we will rise again. There is life beyond the grave. That is the great motive drawn from everything that's been written in this lengthy discourse on the resurrection. Why should we invest all this time and energy in the work of the Lord? Because Jesus is alive. And if he lives, we too shall live forever with him. And what we do here and now counts. Since we believe this, it changes how we think about how we spend our time and what we do with our lives. The resurrection isn't real, then working for the Lord is in vain. If Christ isn't raised and we're not going to be either, then we're wasting our lives having hoped in a lie. There's no good news and we're a sorry bunch of fools because we've offered up our lives in service as a sacrifice of worship 
to a dead Savior. We, we would gather here for nothing every week. We would be spending ourselves on the work of Christ for no purpose. If all of this isn't true, then surely, yes, we should just eat and drink because tomorrow we're going to die. But it's true. Amen? Amen? Jesus is alive. The Word of God says, you know these things are true. You know that there's a day coming when the last trumpet will sound. And we trust resolutely in this revealed truth. And that's why we toil continually. Because we think eternally. On that day, when the works are recounted, if I am found by Jesus to have served him well, he promises a great reward. It's not in vain. It's not in vain. In chapter 3 and verse 13 of this same letter, Paul says, each one's work will become manifest. For the day, and that's a capital D, so not the day that you do the work, but the day, the day we're waiting for, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Our works will be evaluated and there will be rewards accordingly distributed. We don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but we know that this is what the Word of God teaches us, that there is a correspondence between our laboring for the Lord in this life and our experience of heavenly reward in the next. And so we're called by this verse and several others to live like it. Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Everything we do, everything that we do, every day, we do because we believe something is true. If you believe that there's life beyond the grave, that God raises the dead, that there's a heaven and there's a hell, that trusting Jesus means enjoying his presence in everlasting glory and that he will reward faithful labor for his sake and for the sake of others, then this will change the way you live here in this life. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out and lead us in song and as they come out let me just read for you something Charles Spurgeon said that summed this up so well Spurgeon said the reason we give ourselves wholly to the work of the Lord is because we have looked beyond this present realm of death and have gazed into another world where the resurrection shall bring with it our eternal reward There's a reason why we labor for Jesus. There's a reason why we rejoice in the hope of eternal life. 
There's a reason why we sing his praises. So let's stand together and do that now.